Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, I'm Neil Leslie, and you're listening to Tipping Point, a climate podcast with myself and Sean Accor from Two Possible Alternative Futures, where we speak to changemakers and experts about the dangers and impacts of a world tipping into runaway climate change and the actions that they believe can still tip us back the other way. Today, we have been talking with Oliver Schmoll, manager with the climate change team at the World Health Organization's European Centre on Environment and Health. He's been telling us how the summer of 2022 turned deadly across much of Europe with at least 10,000 deaths from the heat waves that swept Ireland and the continent. We talked about how our health services need to start preparing now for a very different future and the impacts more extreme heat will have on every aspect of our lives from work to sport to our homes and mental health. He starts by telling us why climate change is now such a burning issue for the World Health Agenda. Thanks for listening. Yeah, so the the climate is changing, the temperatures are rising. I think everybody has understood the urgency of this matter. And we are looking at climate change from a health and well-being point of view, as we see many direct and indirect impacts of the changing climate on the health. This this ranges from... um, simple things, immediate things that we can imagine is increasing temperatures and heat stress being caused by increased frequencies and intensities of of heat waves. Uh, We have seen last summer in many parts of Western Europe um, devastating floods, uh, leaving a path of destruction and suffering behind. Um, Again, climate change is one of the root causes Um, of such extreme events. And I think also everybody is aware of the increasing number of wildfires that happened across the entire continent um, last year and this year, also again, um, causing economic loss, suffering, and massive health implications um, to people. So in in a nutshell, we are really concerned about the um, impact on health and well-being of a changing climate being at these direct impacts and that we see in the form of extreme events and disasters. But uh, we are also concerned about longer term impacts, for example, uh, mental health issues. Uh, Many of the young people nowadays are very concerned about their future. And uh, a new phenomenon is coming up, which is called climate anxiety, uh, with younger generations being um, concerned about their future. 
and 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 how the planet may look like in in the years to come and um, and what it means to their future and that also kind of impacts on their mental health and well-being so these are just a few examples of why we are looking at climate change uh, from 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 the world health organization uh, and you mentioned the the extreme heat waves that that uh, occurred in europe in, in the summer uh, just past can you can you talk a little bit about what the actual health impacts were, were witnessed across Europe uh, from that? I mean, was there excess deaths? There was a lot of health uh, health complications, health problems for people arising out of that, was there? Yeah, so so heat is becoming year after year more prominent. And it may, one may say that it's becoming an overarching crisis um, in, the, in the European region. Um, and the effect is really on people's health their comfort and well-being, but also they have deep impacts on the functioning of health systems. So the places where you go to seek help and care. So the summer 2022, as all of us experienced, um, was uh, really coming through with a triple burden of heat waves, droughts in several places around Europe and also wildfires. And the, according to the EU Copernicus Climate Change Service, um, they were concluding that Europe had just the hottest summer and the hottest August ever on record. So that's also giving an example of that we are really on a path where temperature and, and heat waves become more and more an issue. Um, these heat waves are, if you wish, invisible disasters as compared to floods, for example, and fires. And preliminary estimates um, of this summer say that there may have been more than 10,000 heat-related deaths, whereas these are preliminary estimates as we need to wait for, the, for, for national services to come up with the final estimates. And we, we think that the numbers may even, may even increase and we will know more by end of the year. Um, but it is only 10,000 that you can see from, from, the, from the initial numbers um, in terms of people dying. And of course, many 10,000, if not 100,000 more suffering um, and, and experiencing um, adverse health outcomes like heat stress uh, primarily. So that means also uh, that they feel uncomfortable, that they may um, experience um, 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 heat attacks or uh, also experience cardiovascular or, or um, other diseases um, that may be triggered um, by the heat wave. And as we, as we, as we said earlier, is um, that the extreme temperatures are a direct result of climate change, particularly the increased frequency and intensity. And um, I think this is why we are really alerted that this may become kind of a uh, has come to stay, and we need to really work on preparing for the uh, preparing for for these developments, and to make sure that people and health systems are ready to respond to to the problems that we are experiencing. That's really interesting what you were saying, and obviously, as Neil pointed out, what the World Health Organization does really came to the fore during the pandemic. Um, I was wondering along those lines, like how much 
of your workload do you think the climate crisis will take up in, in future years? You'd spoken before maybe about the possibility of further infectious diseases. Will we will we see more pandemics as a result of the climate crisis? Will we see more different kinds of illnesses coming through in future years? So that's a very difficult question to answer. Uh, but what we what we can clearly see is that we see uh, changing disease patterns that result from a changing climate. So we see, for example, um, warming water temperatures in some parts of Europe, which lead to the increased presence of, for example, Vibrio species in water that may uh, may infect people um, that, are, that have wounds and that may lead to, to severe infections. And these Vibrio species are associated uh, with warming water temperatures, which may be caused in the long term by, by a changing climate. Another example is, of course, that we can see certain vectors moving northwards uh, in Europe, um, for example, West Nile virus um, or dengue fever. Um, and uh, the, the mosquitoes that are transmitting them um, will find more favorable habitats um, as the uh, climate is warming also in, in northern parts of, the, of Europe. And thereby we need to carefully observe these developments and also make sure that um, we can track them properly, but also that health systems are actually prepared to respond, respond to such changes uh, imminently um, so that we are properly prepared um, to such developments. Um, yes, and of course, there are also other issues that we may um, look at in terms of the changing climate when it comes to infectious diseases. When we, for example, look at waterborne diseases, um, um, that there is, um, there is also an associated increase of waterborne pathogens that may be uh, present in source waters um, that may uh, pose a risk to drinking water supplies if these risks are not properly managed. And, and so, therefore, again, we need to really watch these developments and make sure that um, health systems, but also other sectors who provide health services to the population, including wash services, water and sanitation services, are properly prepared um, for such changes. And what we have seen sort of the outcropping of some of this already, haven't we, with the floods in Bangladesh? I mean, how ready is the world to deal with this? Because it is happening now. <laughs> I'm, I'm not, I'm, I, I don't know the situation in Bangladesh uh, by heart because I'm working particularly in the uh, European region of WHO. Um, but we have also seen in the, in the floods in Western Europe last year in Belgium, in Germany, Netherlands and parts of Switzerland um, that um, these things can hit overnight and, um, and that um, local uh, planning uh, emergency planning uh, schemes need to be ready to respond to such such floods and such um, um, you know preparedness and readiness programming will need to take into account different scenarios, including those uh, that we, you know we, we will be hit by more frequent and more intense of such intense more intense events, and that um, uh, appropriate provisions need to be made. For example, in terms of early warning that people are warned in due time of uh, an event coming so that they can prepare for it and necessary provisions can be made in terms of water supply, in terms of sanitation provision, 
in terms of uh, health systems and hospitals getting ready for treating people and providing care, in terms of providing supplies. So all of that will need to be integrated properly into uh, readiness and preparedness planning schemes um, to take into account these ch uh, changing patterns of extreme events. Thank you, Oliver. Sorry for throwing a few tough ones at you there. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> Just uh, just on that, you talk about early warning systems. And I mean, you've already mentioned, Oliver, that this can be sort of an invisible problem to people. It's uh, It's been described as a silent kind of killer, I think. And you've already outlined how, how serious it is in terms of the, the loss of life. But is there a sense? I mean, I was in Europe this summer and people are on the beaches and they're taking selfies with, you know, planes that are coming in to, to scoop water up to put out wildfires. Is there a sense um, that everyone is underestimating this uh, still, and that awareness is a key area to, to build on. Hard to tell. I mean, I think it depends would be the answer. Though there are certain countries, cities and regions uh, across our region who are taking the heat effects of heat waves very seriously in terms of for example, preparing local or national heat health action plans, which clearly map certain activities to be taken by different stakeholders across the board to prepare for such heat waves, but also to provide immediate response measures once they hit, but also going far beyond by, for example, looking into urban planning issues or uh, architectural issues when it comes to insulating buildings, for example. So there are different scales um, of activities happening in different countries. So there's no one answer on whether or not a country or a region is preparing for it or is under underestimating the, the, the effect. I think different countries are at different stages of understanding the scale of the problem and getting ready for it. I think what is important to understand is that, of course, you and me, the general population, have a certain vulnerability to the effects of heat, but there are specific groups in the population who, who are particularly vulnerable, like the elderly, like people working um, outside, like you know construction workers, for example, or other people with pre-existing um, medical conditions who are very vulnerable to, to heat waves and they require particular attention in terms of, um, you know, getting ready, taking the appropriate measures once the heat comes, but also to, to organize um, support to them uh, so that they know exactly what to do uh, when the situation arises. So, um, yeah, I think I would draw a differentiated picture depending on where certain um, entities stand in terms of preparation. But I think one is very clear, and I've said this earlier, you will see more of it. We will see more extremes. We will see hotter heat waves. We will see them coming earlier in the year, in the year and they will last longer in the year. So they, they, they are events that require our ongoing attention, um, particularly with the changing climate in the back of our mind. I think I did see that uh, you talk about different uh, cities being prepared in different ways. Maybe I think in Seville in Spain, they did uh, initiate a system of 
of categorizing and naming a heat wave possibly for the first time in Europe. I'm not sure this year where they called the heat wave uh, Zoe, I think was the name, but is that a kind of a system? I think they've also suggested that they're going to do that in California and places. So much like hurricanes and tropical storms with names and categories that that, that heat waves would, would be treated similarly to, to raise awareness. Is that something that you'd be uh, in agreement with then? think I would be in agreement of classifying the, 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 the nature of the event. I think this is one way of looking at it, but we, from, from, a, from a health prevention point of view, would more interested in how we can get the information rapidly and in a timely fashion to the people who need them. So of course we have we have kind of European scale uh, meteor services that can predict certain uh, weather uh, heat events. But as long as these information kind of are out in the web and are not usable to, to for individuals, this information is kind of useful uh, for analytical purposes, but not, ne not necessarily uh, useful for those who need the information firstly. And secondly, um, information on a on a on a heat wave to come will always need to be paired with public health advice to the people so that they know how to how to behave in certain scenarios. And so we we are more concerned of bringing this information together in one place and to find also mechanisms by which um, the the population groups that I have just been mentioning uh, receive this inf information in a timely fashion and receive support, for example, by local administration. Um, on, on what people can do to, 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 um, to lower the heat stress and thereby um, stay healthy. Well, what sort of measures do you think, like I know you were saying, we need to look at insulating homes in a certain way to keep them cooler in the summer, warmer in the winter and things like that. But on a personal level, do you think there's anything day-to-day -day people can do to help themselves? Yeah, absolutely. And um, we have also been... Um, uh, releasing quite a few um, risk communication materials on our website, as many other players have done. But we also have provided um, this information. And there, there are quite a few measures that an individual um, can take. Uh, so simple things like um, stay in the shade, avoid excess physical activity if it is hot, um, make sure that your home stays cool. Uh, that includes um, um, closing shutters. That includes um, um, switching off electrical devices at homes. That includes not cooking hot meals during the day because it all contributes to warming up your home. Um, and um, that also, there may also be associated um, uh, measures that one can take, for example, staying hydrated, um, um, throughout the day, or if you are moving through through an urban area, you can also, um, you know, look for cool islands where you can rest um, a little bit before you keep on moving uh, through your shopping tour or your business during the day. So there are quite a few individual measures one can take and that we need to advocate for that, that they become kind of engraved in people's minds. So if you know, you know, we know how to behave on a traffic light, but people should also learn over time how they should behave um, when it's getting hot outside and what they can do to avoid heat stress for themselves and the associated health effects. 
I feel like a redhead. I have all of those things down already <laughs> from previous summer holidays. Um, I was just sort of wondering, kind of as a follow on to that, do you think that the impact of climate change on hotter weather, I know we've spoken about vulnerable groups, but do you think it will, like we see in so many sort of African countries where women are, are already disproportionately affected with any sort of crisis, can you see a future or do you think it will impact women more than it will men? Well, yes. I mean, we have, you know, when I speak about Europe, I mean the WHO European region, which is not only geographic Europe, but also stretches all the way to all the post-Soviet countries in Central Asia and the Caucasus, etc. So many of the phenomena that we also see um, from the more developing context, uh, you mentioned Africa, also are of relevance to some of the um, uh, countries in the eastern part of our region when it, for example, comes to fetching water and um, taking care of water uh, at homes and bringing it to homes. So that's also something that is very relevant to some parts of, of uh, in our region. And for example, if you see longer term impacts of climate change leading to water stress and drought spells, uh, if then also paired with heat waves, that also increases stress, for example, on women or children who are in, in who are mandated by society to uh, take care of, of water supply into homes. And that comes on with a lot of, lot of knock-on effects on, again, health impacts, um, uh, impacts on dignity, but also impacts on, on educational performance, for example, of children and children in schools. So these, these may be examples which are kind of um, that I can immediately see um, uh, happening also as a result um, of climate change. Yeah, I was just thinking on the cities, Oliver, you mentioned at one point are particularly vulnerable spots. For obviously, the large population centers where people live, but they seem to, in heat waves, they get hotter uh, with heat island effects and so on. Is there, um, are you aware, is there a lot of work being done in some cities to try and tackle that? I mean, we're basically talking about almost changing entire cities, the way they work and the way buildings operate. I know places like Madrid, say, are building these large green belts of trees. Is that something we're likely to, to, to need to do or see a lot more of in, in the cities, in European cities in the future? I think so. I think the topic of um, urban and urban green and blue space is a, is a very much emerging topic. Um, providing, I mean, that it has multiple benefits. It's not a, one may not only look at, at it from a, from a climate change perspective, but it has also many other benefits. Um, but certainly also for adapting to climate change to create um, spaces in the urban context where people can rest, where there is shadow, where you create cool islands, as well as um, um, a, yeah, space to rest, um, which gives you, if you wish, a little bit of peace in, in, in the urban heat, literally speaking, because the urban heat island effect is kind of the 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 the, the one thing to watch in the context of, of, of heat, as we all know, and you, we all may know it, right, from our day-to-day -day experience. So if you walk through a city and then, you know, have uh, trees in the street, the temperature may be at a certain level. But then if you walk to the parking lot 
with a lot of buildings around you and the asphalt on the ground. So the temperature may easily increase by a few degrees Celsius. So just simply you are you're moving from one place in the city to another one, and that's called the urban heat island effect. So that the heat really accumulates in certain areas in the city. And at the same time, you will need to look for space where people then can find a more uh, cool, um, cool microclimate in town. And that also contributes, for example, to, um, you know, um, uh, cooling down the entire city during night, for example, when waters cool down and then the, the cold is, is, is um, traveling through the city. So I think these, 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 these urban design issues are very important and provide a huge potential. And we see already a, a few cities moving that path. Uh, certainly the city of Utrecht in the Netherlands is a very good example for that. Um, uh, where they are really going big and redesigning also the urban landscape to to get ready and to adapt um, to a changing climate, but at the same time also contributing and creating an environment where people can uh, perform physical activity, where people can ride their bike, where people can walk in comfort, which in turn is then also supporting uh, mitigation. Uh, mitigation of a changing climate by reducing uh, local carbon emissions, for example. So that so that's really creating a, a, a triple win situation uh, for the people, for and, and for the climate, and for for the local administration. Yeah, I mean, it's that's what it seems like sometimes when you talk about these solutions that there are there are multiple wins, not just uh, fixing the immediate problem, but you can end up with a, a much better livable living space in a city and so on. But uh, just as you mentioned, physical activity there, I'm not sure if this is slightly off the, the track, but uh, next month you have the, you know, the World Cup coming up in Qatar has been uh, quite the center of attention in terms of the whole build up to it and the, the heat factor there and things that have gone on there uh, and moving the whole tournament to winter and so on. It's been quite controversial in its own way. But I mean, is sport something that's likely to, you know, to be deeply impacted by these kind of heat waves that we're seeing in Europe, how people play sport and what they're used to, uh, what they used to being able to do? Well, that's slightly beyond my, 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 my immediate knowledge. But I think what one is clear that that um, ex physical activity should should take place uh, during times of the day, either in the morning or in the evening, uh, so that um, that the body gets less affected by by higher temperatures. And I think that applies also for for sports being done as a, as a leisure activity. I'm not quite sure how that translates to kind of uh, Champions League kind of sports men and women. Uh, and maybe they are better adapted to these conditions and they are more fit, but I think it has impact also on the, on the kind of lacking the proper English word here. So the, the normal sport activity by, 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 by normal people on a day to day basis. And I think that should be clearly observed. But again, I'm not really, uh, I haven't really looked into that myself and can't share insights here. Yeah, sure. Oh, I know certainly from being involved in with children's sport over here in Ireland, it's an already opposite problem of heavy uh, winter downpours, which we'll see more of uh, in a changing climate that stop you playing here. Yeah. No, yeah, uh, well, just as a follow on to that, like obviously we need clean air, don't we? We need clean water, we need food, all of these things we need to live and obviously. You need to have clean versions to be healthy, but 
in relation to sort of we're going to have downpours, we heard from a climate scientist earlier on on one side of our country and then on the other side, droughts. Like how much of an impact will will that have and, and the cleanliness of water in years to come? Both having too much water and having too little water is, is causing adverse impacts. And so too much water, you know, flushes in um, contaminated water into into supplies. It's um, destroying infrastructure, which may lead to also to, to adverse consequences in the distribution of water and to its quality. But also having too, too little water may compromise appropriate hygiene practices. Having too little water in the environment also concentrates pollutants in receiving waters, um, uh, waters that receive wastewater discharges at the same time are being used for producing drinking water or being used for recreational activities. So both extremes need to be managed well. And I think this is the main point. On the one hand, we need to look into making infrastructures resilient so that they are as, as best as possible protecting for these events, but at the same time, it requires adaptive management so that those who are in charge of, let's say, managing a water supply understand what risks may come up in their local circumstances and that they make appropriate provisions on the management side to uh, manage those risks, either by infrastructural interventions, by um, treatment interventions, but also sometimes by uh, simple managerial interventions um to be taken and i think we need to work with the uh wash community to raise awareness of the changes coming up but also making them understand what that means concretely to their very very local situation because there is no kind of template at which you can look and go through the ticks say oh this this is this is going to apply to me no it will most likely be very different in each very setting and thereby it requires a, a setting-specific local approach to understanding the risk and managing the risk uh, that may come up through either too much water uh, or too little water. So we need to plant trees, lots of them. We need to get on the active transport and we need to sort out our sanitary and water infrastructure to, to future-proof the country. Is there any other sort of like standout burning thing that you would love countries to really start considering now because I know why we have sort of seen the beginning impacts of climate change and heat waves and everything else is there anything else that you can see maybe coming in five ten years time that country it's not really on the radar but that we should be considering for the future uh, naturally since I'm working for the health world health organization um, I think we need to be we need to work very hard to make sure that health systems as such can provide, can continue providing the support that they need to provide to the people so that the health system as such becomes climate resilience. That can mean a lot. That can start with simple infrastructural changes. And we have spoken about insulation. We have spoken about, you know, making things flood proof. But that also means that um, medical professionals will need to understand the health risks coming of a changing climate and being ready to detect them in case people come and seek advice 
from the health system so that they are ready to detect, for example, a dengue case or to effectively respond to a person who is stressed from heat, for example, so that also the system and the medical workforce understands very well um, the impacts and also is ready to uh, provide the um, advice and services that are needed in certain circumstances. At the same time, I think the health workforce plays a very, very important role in educating and disseminating information to the general public on how can people make a change themselves, but also how they can protect themselves from the effects of the changing climate. So the health professionals are very vocal and trusted ambassadors for many of us when it comes to um, these kind of um, awareness raising um, uh, awareness raising among the general um, population. And I think they play a very important um, role in this. And I think th this is probably less visionary as you were asking, Shona, um, in terms of what may happen. But I think we still have a long stretch to go and making that a reality. And I think if we can make the health systems aware and resistant and uh, in, in terms of uh, having adaptive capacity, not only to climate change, but also to other changes. Uh, you mentioned yourself, uh, air quality, for example, and the impacts on human health. I think that would already be a big gain. Um, that would be my vision to that I want to contribute to in, in the decade to come really at um, international, but also at local level. And perhaps I may add that at the national level, uh, in Glasgow last year, we had COP26, and it was for the first time ever that a health program was launched at, at a COP after 26 COPs. The first time a health program uh, was launched, which was particularly putting a lens on what I have just been explaining, asking and inviting countries to commit to creating climate resilient health systems, as well as climate smart systems, which means that health, the health sector as such also contributes to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, so the health sector is contributing about four to five percent, globally speaking, to greenhouse gas emissions, which is not the largest share, but the health sector also needs to walk the talk and really um, do its own homework. And, I, and we, we really truly believe that this is a very important international move that we are also supporting from our side to work with countries to, you know, to embark on this avenue um, in the short and the long term. That sounds like uh, huge yeah, challenges for health systems and health services yeah, that are coming out of the pandemic and so on. But um, I'm just going to, yeah, just a couple more um, things to touch on really from my side anyway. Uh, just going back to something you mentioned earlier, Oliver, on the, uh, the climate anxiety kind of issue that's arisen particularly among young people. Uh, is that an area that the World Health Organization is targeting with any strategies or how big a, a problem is that now for the, the younger generation and, and is there things we should be doing to help them? Or? It's a problem that we increasing, increasingly start understanding. Um, only recently a few systematic literature reviews on this topic uh, were published. And um, we have just been publishing a, a policy brief on, on that matter recently, earlier this year, where we have tried to summarize um, 
the current state of knowledge, and that is uh, related um, to climate anxiety, but also longer term mental health impacts that may result from it, but also transcending to overall um, trust in decision making among politicians, uh, which is which came out also very big from some of the studies, which is suffering because the younger generations are lacking confidence that actually policymakers and decision makers are taking the appropriate actions to protect protect uh, the planet and the health of the people um, in response to a changing climate. So there's more and more evidence coming out on this and we are looking into it uh, more intensively. Um, but I think what is, I shouldn't link it directly, but I, I, I think that it's really what comes into my mind when seeing the pictures of Fridays for Future and the younger generations being on the street uh, literally every week and claiming claiming attention and urging for action uh, on, on, on tackling that, that, that ongoing disaster that we are facing, which is a matter of existence. And I think, um, I think this is a very, very powerful voice um, that is calling us and politicians uh, and asking for accountability, really, and taking the appropriate uh, appropriate measures. And I think um, these, this move, on the one hand, can fuel action, but at the same time, it raises concern through the climate anxiety and you know and 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 knock knock on effects that we see. And I think these two developments are kind of linked to each other and and we should take them very very seriously and uh, and, and and work on 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 responding to them it is yeah i mean it's it's good to note that you you know the a hopeful kind of a you know a picture there with seeing the the movement out in the streets and so on yeah i guess anxiety is not just limited to the younger generation then either for the likes of yourself or who works in this area Do you, i mean are you does it make you fearful looking ahead to to future summers? We're told uh, all you know the chances of another record breaking summer, one in the next three summers are, are like you know almost a hundred percent. Is it something you're fearful of, or the more air on the side of hope, like you say, when you see the young people out and demanding action? I I'm an optimist myself. I I personally feel threatened. But I, I want to personally contribute to, 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 to contribute to solutions um, on, on my side. Um, and I'm more concerned about my daughter's feelings and fears, which are much stronger than mine. And that kind of indirectly makes me also becoming scared a little bit because I see that uh, deep concern and kind of lack of future that is being perceived by her and her friends. So that's kind of a, that is kind of what concerns me personally much more. And I think we still haven't come to a point where you and me and anyone else um, see climate change as something which is here and now and not some dis distant risk in some you know, remote landscape somewhere. And I think we are coming more and more close to an understanding among, you know, I can just speak about my family, my colleagues, my friends, 
but I think we are coming much closer to a to a collective societal understanding um, that um, that we need to take urgent action, transformative action for our societies, which includes also significant changes in our own behaviors and includes um, different life patterns, so to say, in, in order to 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 redress the the um, uh, the the, um, the climate the effects of climate change and I think this is what I want to contribute to uh, I don't want to get paralyzed by fear myself but hope um, that I can contribute and help with finding appropriate solutions just a wee one to tie to tie up we've got um, and I agree with everything you're saying there um, and even from our conversation and numerous conversations we've had with different people in relation to this podcast, the solutions are so, I don't want to say obvious because it sounds a bit facetious, but some of them are. I mean, it's plant more trees in your cities. It's get everybody on their bikes. It's, But, but governments around the world just seem unable to take this step away from fossil fuels. I mean, we've got a great group in Ireland called Irish Doctors for the Environment, and they're very outspoken on these issues, and they are medical professionals and you know, that speak about more than just medical issues. And, and I know that's your remit, but I was just wondering, the World Health Organization, you can see quite vocally on Twitter, UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres gets very frustrated. What's the feeling within the World Health Organization about the impacts of this coming down the line? And do you think that countries and politicians are doing enough? Just to finish off, we always simple one. Both our Director General, Dr. Tedros, but also our Regional Director, uh, Dr. Kluge, are taking very clear stance on climate change. It's well understood. We have in WHO a strategy on environment, climate change and health um, to, uh, you know, working in our space to support, um, to support adapting to and mitigating the health impacts of climate change. So it is, has arrived very high on the agenda, um, also in our house. And an expression of this may also be, it was only recently, a couple of weeks ago, when the Regional Committee for Europe of WHO concluded its session in Israel and Tel Aviv, um, the highest decision-making body for the Regional Office for Europe of WHO. And several ministers have taken the floor during the session and have clearly flagged that climate change is among their top priorities um, to look at. And I'm speaking ministers or state secretaries of health, our constituencies. And we see that also many ministries have institutionalized climate change in their agencies and in their ministries. So there are several examples across the region where there is now a climate change department in the Ministry of Health, where there is a climate change unit in a, in a government body which is concerned with, with health protection, for example. And that is also in a very, I mean, on the one hand, a very abstract level of response. On the other hand, it's an acknowledgement that we need to internalize climate change in all policies and all policy making. And I think that that multi-sectorial spirit in responding to climate change is something that we need still to promote. And I think with that, we can really reach win-win-win situations in responding to it. So that we are not only taking a measure um, to respond to 
the changing climate, but that we see other societal co-benefits or benefits um, resulting from it, and like cycling, um, uh, physical activity, which is you know reducing air pollution in, in cities, having multiple health benefits, but at the same time helping also mitigating the the changing changing climate. And I think we should really look at this in a more integrated fashion. Um, at at all levels, at national levels, but even more so at city and local levels, where a lot of the uh, decision making um, sits these days, and um, when it comes to urban planning, for example. Thanks a million for listening, and if you enjoyed what you heard, feel free to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.